Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house? And all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all he has is in your hand. Only do, against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So what do you do? This, of course, is an ancient story. In fact, one of the oldest writings in the Word of God. But the truth and the reality of this story is our lives. What do you do? What do you do when every phone call or every knock at the door or every communication or every email or every message just seems to declare loss, pain, suffering, and hurt. That's a reality. That is our lives. And fortunately, the Word of God has so much to say about those times, those difficulties, when they come. And even more fortunately, as we're in the middle of our Scar Wars series, the armor portion, as we see in these first three pieces of armor, we see the truth 
that God even addresses difficulties such as that. That's what I love about God. He's always so timely. He's always so true. He's also just spot on every single time. We've been studying from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 15 particularly, and it says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And let me pause there because there may be someone who's going, well, first off, what's this story? What about the armor of God? What does that mean? And who even wrote this anyway? Well, the Apostle Paul was a guy who hated Jesus and hated Christians. And that's before he was the Apostle. His name was Saul, in fact, and he changed his name later. And so one day, he has an encounter with Jesus Christ as he was traveling to put more Christians in prison and perhaps have them killed. He meets Jesus and becomes a Jesus follower. And so he's written over half of the New Testament. He becomes passionate for this man named Jesus that he for so long hated. And then... As he's serving Christ, he's locked up, he's put in prison, he's put in jail. And everywhere he looks and everywhere he sees, he sees Roman soldiers. And he's trying to teach the people about how do you live in difficult times? What do you do when the storms are big? What do you do when life makes no sense whatsoever? So he looks at a Roman soldier and says, you know, just like that Roman soldier wears this this belt of truth. So we should have a belt of truth also. Not our truth, but the truth of the Word of God. And as I've said over again, I'm really hoping it will permeate, permeate our hearts finally. You know, the, you know, all the authors, you know, all the authors, 66 books, 40 authors, written over a 1,500-year span, dating all the way back to 1600 B.C. and up to about 100 A.D. A writing that you can trust, the Word of God, the Word of truth. He says, allow that to permeate your life, to put it on and apply it into your life. And then he taught us last week and said, you need to put on the breastplate of righteousness, not our righteousness, but his righteousness. We, we need to understand who we are when we receive Jesus Christ, that we are declared righteous by God. We'll talk a little bit about that today. But also, when we choose to live uprightly, when we choose to live righteously, there's a delight in that because of the, of the elimination of consequences. Yes, it's great for the glory of God, but we have personal benefit. And then we come to the part that addresses the what if and the when all the hard times come. Here's what we read. Paul says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let me read it again. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, he's saying that we should put on our shoes. We should put on our shoes. The Romans had a certain type of sandal that, that covered some of the foot, allowed the rest of the foot to be open and to breathe. But most significantly was they would drive nails through the sole of the sandal and that would give the soldier traction when he was in combat, when he was marching, when he was doing life. And so Paul is saying like the Roman soldier put on that type of shoe that gives them stability, that helps them to stand so we are also to put our gospel shoes on. Two key words. Actually, two key thoughts. First off, the gospel of peace. And that's what's so incredible. It's not the gospel of religion. It's not the gospel of do better. It's not the gospel of I hope you can make it. It's the gospel of peace. Not not our peace. It's the gospel of peace with God. The gospel of peace of God. Let me say that again. The gospel of peace with God 
and the gospel of peace of God. And it is an incredible story. And that word preparation there declares a readiness to share. Listen, the gospel message is too good to keep to ourselves. The gospel message is too big to be kept to ourselves. And if you have personally experienced this gospel message, if you have experienced the Christ of the cross, if you've experienced the forgiveness and the freedom that He can bring, you know what I'm talking about today. That, that this message needs to be shared in a world that is so upside down, that's so topsy-turvy, that simply is seeking for something that's real and, and is a reality. And that's the gospel of peace. We need to be ready to share it. And we need to be willing to experience it. So what did Job do? If it's one of the oldest writings in the Old Testament, and it is, written somewhere around the middle of Genesis, if that gives you some kind of a time frame, what do we do? What did Job do? Listen to what it says. And this is from Job chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. The Bible says, after receiving all this news, the camels were gone, the sheep were gone, the crops were gone, and most tragically and catastrophically, his kids were gone. The Bible says, Then Job arose, he tore his robe and shaved his head. He tore his robe and shaved his head. Very significantly is the fact that a common man would wear a very simple linen tunic. But, but if you had wealth, if you had prestige, if you had status, it would be in a very elaborate robe. robe. It spoke who you are and who you were. And Job takes this robe and grabs it and rips it with his hands. It's a symbol of grief. It says he shaved his head. Again, in the East, a symbol of deep grief. We express our grief in different ways. I understand that. Unfortunately, in the East, they were more open about sharing grief. Now we try to internalize so often our grief, especially we men. We don't want people to see us cry. We don't see people to experience the pain that we experience. So we internalize us and it eats us alive. But Job rather takes this robe, rips it and shaves his head. And then he does an expected thing and an unexpected thing. He does an expected thing and an unexpected thing. The Bible says that he fell to the ground. Being a pastor is one of the highest callings and privileges that there is. But it also means you walk some pretty dark places with folks. I still remember very well the, the day we had gone to meet a friend at Subway and we heard of an accident. And a very good friend of ours who attended the Cobden Church, her husband and daughter were going to Anna and the small pickup truck and someone hit them head on. The daughter was critically, critically injured and so was the husband. We rushed down to Union County Hospital and sat with the family in a private room and the doctor walked in and said, your daughter's gone. She has died. She was like 27, 28 years old. And I watched this dear friend of mine, this dear sister, as she, I can see it to my mind, in my mind's eye, she literally just slid down the wall and collapsed, 
collapsed in anguish and in pain. Suffering does that to us. Suffering can cause us to literally puddle and collapse. Particularly when it's anguish like I'm speaking of today. So when Job, with the death of his children, when we find him on the ground, it's something you would fully expect to happen. But what's not expected is, the Bible says he fell to the ground, not as in a puddle, though he was, but he fell in worship. How unusual. Of course, if, if you start understanding who Job was, yes, he was probably the, it says he was the wealthiest man in the East, a man of upright standing, one of the held in highest esteem, one of the greatest men of the East. He still was just a man. And he puddles. But he's a God follower. He's a God follower. And with deep understanding, he falls to the ground in anguish, but he falls in the ground in worship. And what he says in his worship is huge. And I would suppose that if there's something that you need to, to, to take home in your heart today, it's the next two things that we learn from Job. When these tragedies, when these storms come... When the, when the email and the message and the phone call and the knock at the door come, when the doctor says, what do you say? Here's what he says. Verse 21. As he's on the ground and in part of his worship, he says this. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Now, we're almost positive that, that the terminology of the mother's womb is more of a picture of coming into this world and leaving this world. It's a poetic picture. The bottom line is, Job is saying that I came into this world without anything, and I'm going to leave this world Without anything. Paul, the apostle, the same guy um, who wrote Ephesians, also write, writes in 1 Timothy 6, 7, says this. We brought nothing in, and it is certain we can take nothing out. We brought nothing in, and it's certain we can take nothing out. Yes, Job had lost his wealth. Job had lost his camels. He had lost his oxen. He had lost all of this. But here's what he understood. When I was born, I had nothing. And when I die, I will have nothing. Everything that Job held in his hands was temporal. It will help you understand. It will help you do life when you begin to understand that everything that you hold dear in your life is temporal. It's temporal. You didn't have it when you were born. And you won't take it out when you leave. No matter what station in life you were born, whether you were born into a family with great wealth or where you've been poor, the bottom line is this. You came in with nothing and you're going to leave with nothing. Everything that truly matters can't be bought at Walmart. 
There were other oxen. There would be other sheep. There would be other camels. There would be other servants. It's all temporal. So when the message comes, when the text mail comes, when the phone rings, when the knock at the door occurs, just keep in mind it's all temporal. And you're going, whoa, 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 Dwayne. I've got you on this one. You see, you left out one important factor, and that is what about those kids? What about those kids? They're not temporal. They're eternal. If you want to have a very good reason to make sure your kids know Jesus like you know Jesus, because it assures the fact that you'll never be separated from them for eternity. We all are eternal beings and we live somewhere eternally with Jesus. We live in this place called heaven. And frankly, without Jesus, we are separated from God in a place called hell. But there can be a family reunion in a place called heaven if we will lead our children to know Jesus Christ as Savior. It's kind of interesting, by the way. If you go all the way back to the end of the book, it's always cheating to look at the end of the book, but if you go back to chapter 42, you find out, and God blessed the latter days of Job more than the first. He doubled the sheep. He doubled the oxen. He doubled the servants. And He gave him seven sons and three daughters. He even doubled that. No, Dwayne, you you, you told the story. They died. Ah, yes. But you see, when Job got to heaven and the family circle was complete, there were all 14 sons and six daughters right there. Because what death steals away, God gives back through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. So the bottom line is this. If we lose what is materialistic, what is temporal in this world, you didn't bring it in, and you're not going to take it out. And the one thing that matters, those that you love, God's made a way that you can be together forever in a place called heaven. That's why the gospel of peace is so important. Amen? Amen? Now, he says something else. He says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. The second great thing you've got to understand is, is that we are stewards and not owners. We are stewards and not owners. The Lord gave. Everything that we have came from God. Everything we have comes from God. He is the giver. He is the owner. And we are stewards. So because of that, and we don't get this in Western culture. Our friends in the Middle East get it very well. The bottom line is this. Because he is God. Someone say, because he's God. Because he's God and he is the owner, he has the right to give to whom he chooses to give and take away whatever he chooses to take away. He is God. Now, the good news is, if he was a, if he was a tyrantical God, if he was a mean God, if he was a hating God, that would be deep weeds. That would be the other guy, by the way, the God wannabe, Satan. Your God, if you know him, is a loving God. He's a loving father. That's who he is. It's his nature. 
You know, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says that God demonstrated His love to us even while we were sinners. Even while we were sinners. Even while we stubbed our nose at God. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us. That's a good, good Father. That's a great and wonderful God. So because He's God, He has the right to give and He has the right to take away. And if He takes away material stuff, you can't take it with you anyway. Check the hearse at, at Reed's Funeral Chapel. You won't find a trailer hitch. The, <laughs> the reason why caskets are about the size of a human being is because nothing else goes. You leave it all behind. And even the body. What do we know about this? As a person knows Christ as Savior, even the body will be resurrected and be made brand new one day again. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And then he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand sometimes, but I trust him. And because he's God and because he's a good father and because he gives and takes away and because I had nothing to start and he gave me all of this, blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, if we would learn this truth. We worship God. He's consistent. He does not change. He's a good God. He's a loving God. And so regardless of circumstances and way things play out, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, if you worship other things, if you worship stuff, if you worship a person, that's trouble. But because God is God and because He's this wonderful Father who loved us so much, He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross in great sacrifice and great cost. Because of all that, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's just amazing because the Bible says in verse 22, in all this, Paul's there. And if you're a note taker or if you circle in your Bible, circle all this or whatever your translation, uh, translate that as. All this would be his mess. The mess he found himself in. He could go over here and see thousands of dead cattle. He could go this way and see thousands of dead oxen. He could go over here and see thousands of dead camels. He could see servants that were gone and taken. All this. He could go to the tent where his children were. Some of us have made the hard, had faced the hard task of going to face identifying a loved one has died. See, you had, he had a mess and we have a mess. It's called life. And in all this, in all that mess, Job did not sin. In fact, he did not charge God with wrong. In other words, he didn't blame God. I've realized something. Too many times I've found myself trying to apologize for God. God needs no apologies. He's God. Now, I don't mind telling you, and you've been to a funeral I've done, I will tell you there are times I don't understand. There are times it makes no sense. But because I know the nature and the character of God, I need not apologize for Him. Nor do I need to blame Him. Because he is blameless. He is blameless.
So Job somehow knew what to do and did it well. Now the question is, what do we do and how do we do it well? Well, again, we know that storms come into our life. We know sometimes they're catastrophic. We go back to the leap day tornado, eight people taken. People sitting in this room, your lights, your houses, your house were destroyed and your life was messed up. In this room today, you experienced that. You know about those sudden and quick storms. Some of you know people that you saw the storm coming. You could see the horizon darkening. You could see the thunder. You saw the lightning. You knew a person was on a path that was going to lead to tragedy. And it didn't seem like there's anything you could do to stop it. We know about storms. One of the greatest amazing things, in fact, I just saw on the Weather Channel yesterday or last night that they are launching a new satellite that will greatly increase the capacity of the the National Weather Service to predict storms and tornadoes and hurricanes be launched in November. So we would wisely then, in the area of spiritual storms and life storms, we would go to the Storm Prediction Center. We would go to the place in God's Word where we get predicted what's going to happen in the future. It will help us. When we begin to understand that in this imperfect world that God did not create, but we created because of sin, if we'll go to that storm prediction center, he will tell us what's about to happen. Here's what he said. In John chapter 16, verse 33, these things, these things being John 14, 15, and 16, in, in 14, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Comforter. He talks about peace in several places. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that, here's the key word, in me. Not in religion, not in going to church, not in being a good person, but in me you may have peace. You may have peace peace. The Storm Prediction Center says we're going to have storms. We'll read it in just a moment. The Storm Prediction Center says we are going to have storms, but Jesus says if you're in me, you can have peace. Regardless of the storm, you can have peace. When Jonathan and Rebecca built their new home in Vienna, they did what many people have done now. What is that? They put in a safe room. A safe room is a place designed to keep you safe from the worst a storm has to offer. Jesus Christ is our storm room. Jesus Christ is our storm room. When we are in Him, no matter how fierce the storm is, we will find peace and safety. And then He makes that prediction. He says, listen, you need to know this. In the world, in this world, in your world, in your life, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble, he says. But be of good cheer. Well, why? Because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ is our safe room. Jesus Christ is our peace in the midst of the great storms that come. Now, all this hinges on and all this hooks on this what I call permanent peace. Permanent peace. The idea, the concept that when we're in Christ, we are held secure by Him. 
If you're here today and you're a guest, you're visiting for whatever reason, I hope if you've never heard this truth before that you'll listen real, real carefully to the next few moments. And if you have heard this before, listen even carefully because you can share the great truth. Over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2, again, another book that this apostle Paul, the former Jesus hater, wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Uh, Probably an easy way of saying that is, therefore, having been made right by faith. Having a right standing before God. Now, that's pretty cool because as I shared with, with a young man this morning, Here is God, and He's like perfect, He's like holy, okay? And here we are over here, and we're anything but that. The Bible says we're totally depraved, we're all sinners, there's none righteous, there's none that doeth good, there's none that seeketh after God. This is us, and this is God. And God declares us, God provides a way that He can declare us just and right, without violating his own character. He did that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Peace with God. Through, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, God is love. But again, he's got to be just. And that's why there's a hell. The Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. But for every person who refuses the free pardon of sin, the free forgiveness of sin, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross, God can't just wink and go, we'll pretend like you didn't sin. He can't do that and remain God. He can't do that and keep his character. So he demanded a price. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. He demanded a price. And watch this. And then paid it. And then paid it. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that the lights were turned out. He cries out and says, Eli, Eli, Laba, Sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the full wrath of God, the full payment that sin would demand was placed on Christ. And not on us. He paid the price. And then... He cries out and says what? It is finished. It's done. It's paid for. It's done. He doesn't put a down payment down for us and then say, if you're good enough, if you can do enough good stuff, then you can finish paying for it. I know sometimes parents will say, I'll put down a down payment for your car and then you pay the rest. Um, I'll buy the car. You pay for the gas and the insurance. Well, honey, let me tell you something. What Jesus Christ did on the cross, paid for the car, paid for the insurance, paid for the gas, paid for the maintenance. It's done. It's done. Yeah, amen. It's done. It's done. Now, can you imagine how crazy it would be for a teenager to say, no, mom and dad, that's all right. I'll pay for the insurance. I don't know one, but I don't know one who would say this. I'll pay for the insurance. I'll pay for it. No, no, no. No. When mom and daddy say, listen, I'm willing, there's an acceptance. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He paid the price that we could have this forgiveness of sin through his sacrifice. We can have peace with God. He goes on and says this. Through whom also we have access by faith, I love this, I love this, into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope 
of the glory of God. I love this phrase. We have access by faith unto this grace. I love the way, I love the translation, the way it points out this grace. This grace. This amazing grace. This wonderful grace. This unlimited grace. This never ending grace. Again, I shared in that, in that experience this morning with that young man how that just like his mom and dad, he would always be a child of his mom and dad. I said, no matter what you do, no matter how you mess up, that will always be your mama and this will always be your daddy. It's in your DNA. It's in your blood. This grace, this grace is an unending grace. Come on now. This grace is a never, never, never let you go grace. This grace is a grace that says, no matter how you mess up, I'm still going to call you son. I'm still going to call you daughter because you didn't earn it. I paid for it and I won't take it back. This grace, this grace, we're held. So today you can have peace with God. Regardless when the storms come, you know, a, a God, you know why I think God is so much better than Santa Claus? Have you ever thought about that? The song says that Santa Claus, he knows when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And the whole point of the, of the deal is, if you don't perform right, you get coal. You get that C-O-A-L. Aren't you glad God's not like Santa Claus? Because He's God, you mess up, you don't get cold, you get more grace. Now, y'all need to get this. That's why this gospel of peace is the greatest and best news there is. It eliminates the fail factor, and the fail factor is me. The success factor is God. He started it, He's going to end it, and all things in between. It's amazing. It's amazing. He says in Colossians 3, another book that the Apostle Paul wrote and said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, God, us, separated. You who were once afar off have been brought near, how, how, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Wow. So when we have God as Father, when we accept this wonderful free gift of salvation, when he becomes our Father, he makes this incredible promise in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13. He said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Now, is there a better deal than that? You know, I was, I was raised in a time, and see if y'all remember this, that you were loyal to the company, and the company was loyal to you. Anybody remember those days? They don't exist now. Now it's the bottom line. Now it's the bottom dollar. But back when I remember a time when, 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 you, know, when, the, when, you, were, when you served the company, the company served you. Well, God does one step better. He says, even if you're not faithful, I'll be faithful. And if you're not faithful, I'll be faithful. 
I'll always, listen, oh, you need to hear this. Some of you are going through a hard time right now. And if you were honest, you'd say, you know what? I'm not walking real close to God. Haven't, that might be why I'm in this mess, you think. Because, boy, I'm walking so far from God. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. And when you have peace with God, well, you can have the peace of God. You done figured out we ain't going to get there. That's quite fine, thank you. But I want to tell you about a man today. A story you've heard before, but you need to hear it again. A man who so loved God, he, had this, he had knew this wonderful peace with God, and he had this incredible peace of God. His name was Horatio Spafford. You've heard the story. Maybe you'll hear something that you did not know. Horatio Spafford lived in Chicago, Illinois. He was a lawyer and a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I didn't know this. He was, how many of you ever heard D.L. Moody? Yeah, he was a great friend of D.L. Moody, a big supporter of D.L. Moody. Interestingly enough, he was, again, he was a lawyer and, and he had real big real estate investments. He was a very wealthy man. Six to one, he used that money for the right purposes in life. Well, in 1870, his only son, two years old, suddenly died. Love God. His son dies. Been there? In 1871, the Chicago fire ravaged, well, Chicago. And he virtually was financially wiped out. He had invested heavily in the, in the riverfront there in Chicago. And all of it burned up. 1871. For the next two years, he was working to rebuild his wealth. And he decided to send the family on a vacation. One story said this, and I don't know, frankly, you can't believe everything, everything the internet says, but that he had to stay behind and negotiate some zoning codes he was trying to get through for the new property that he was purchasing and rebuilding in Chicago. But regardless, he put his wife and his remaining four daughters on a ship. And midway across the Atlantic, approximately, two ships collide. Many were lost, including his four daughters. His wife was picked up and she survived and is taken to England. And she texts back that famous telegram, saved alone. And Horatio Spafford gets on a ship as soon as he can and sails to be with his wife, his grieving wife in England. And asks the steward to get him up when they approximately hit the spot where the tragedy occurred. And that happened about 2 o'clock in the morning, so the story goes. He went to the bow of the ship, and there in his worship and in his grief, does that sound familiar? He writes the incredible hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace, life a river, attendeth my way. When sea like sea sorrows roll, 
no matter my lot, I will say, it is well with my soul. I wish I could tell you that was the end of the story, but it's not. He had two more daughters and another son. In 1880, his only living son died. So what do you think Mr. Spafford did? How did this man, devoted follower of Christ, lawyer, success, what did he do? Would you like to know? Bet we don't know this part of the story. He picks up his family, Brent and moves to Jerusalem to begin a ministry there to hurting people. He spends the rest of his life in the Middle East serving those that need to be served. That's the story of the man who wrote, It's Well With My Soul. Every day when Job, well, in the modern day Job, But every day when Job got up, if he had pants, he'd have put them on. Ratio Spafford every day got up and put his pants on just like an ordinary man. Because you know why? That's what he was. That's what he was. He had the peace with God and the peace of God. And my invitation is very simple and very clear today. I don't believe in accidents. I believe you are here by divine appointment. I believe God has you here for this worship that we've experienced and this time. And if you're here today, we want to give you the opportunity to learn more about this gospel of peace that we heard about today. My friend Brent's going to be standing right down front. And frankly, the only reason we do it this way It's not that we're trying to pull you out of your chair in front of 300 people. That's not the point. The point is we got some folks who can answer questions, and we'd love that opportunity. So we want to invite you during our decision time to come down, take Brent by the hand, say, okay, I don't understand all of what Dwayne said, but I'd like to know more. And we got some friends who will be glad to talk with you. We won't embarrass you. won't twist your arm. We'll just try to answer your questions about this incredible free gift that God made possible through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's the purpose. And you know what? If, if you say, I just can't do that, all three worship guys and a bunch of people in this room can tell you about what I'm talking about today after church. In fact, you know what? We'll come to your house. And again, we won't strong arm you. We won't twist your arm. I'm just giving you this opportunity to know this peace of God and peace with God. And if you're here and you're my brother and sister in Christ and you're, you, you know what I'm talking about today, I just want you to know this. Don't give up on God. When every phone call and every text message and everything else happens, don't do what you might be tempted to do and blame God and write God off. Rather, be like Job. You may need to fall to the ground. You may, as my friend did in Cobden, just slide down the wall into a puddle. But when you get there, and when you get your equilibrium just a little bit, worship. Worship. Remember that all the things in this world are temporal, and what's eternal 
God gives you the opportunity to spend eternity with what really matters. Jesus and your loved ones. And just remember, God gives and God takes away. It's all His. We're just stewards. All we can do is say, thank you, God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I'm almost certain I can say with authority today, you've orchestrated this day. It's just one of those times. It just seems so obvious. I know there are some folks here today that that need to make a commitment to Christ. I only say that because in a room this full, there are folks. You want to have peace with them, and you've made it possible. But, Father, it's, it's, it's really them saying yes to Jesus. Jesus, you've done it all. But we have to receive this great gift of forgiveness. So I want to pray that, Holy Spirit, you just draw them to you. And, and Father, if now's their time to come, that they come. And if it's later on this week or it's this afternoon or however you work it out. I know the Bible says that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation, to redemption. So speak to hearts today. The ones, Father, that need Jesus. And God, for us who are blessed to live in this great country and we have great wealth compared to the rest of the world, it's awful easy as Father to put our little fingers around our stuff and when that stuff disappeared to get all mad and worked up about it. But we brought nothing into this world and we're not going to take anything out. Those things don't even matter. And again, they're not ours. We're just stewards. But Father, I pray this. Help us to be sharers of the gospel of peace. Like our friend does over in the Middle East. Like many do right here in this room and in their neighborhood. Help us to be sharers. Help us to be willing to tell others what you have done for us. I guess that's what makes tonight so exciting. When we had that service and baptized seven folks willing to make that stand for Christ. How cool. How wonderful. How good. So may we leave today standing firm with our, with our belt of truth on, which is your word, with your breastplate of righteousness, which is all yours and not ours. And yes, our feet with our shoes on, prepared to tell about the great good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. And blessed be your name. And I pray it in that precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen.